Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Josh Reynolds, a wine critic for the International Wine Cellar, stops by today to tell us about his history reviewing the fine wines of Europe. Josh Reynolds on the show today. How are you, sir? I am doing very well, thank you, and uh, happy to be here, and uh, finally finally able to uh, to meet up. We've been trying to do this for a while, and uh, happy it finally happened. All good things in the end. Always. So you were working in mutual funds, and you used to hang out at the wine shops, and then 87 came along financial downturn, and you were uh, looking for a new career, and what happened? It actually goes back further than that, um, because I was uh, going to your alma mater, BU, got there in 1980, and uh, was able, through the uh, the good graces of a fake ID, to be able to go to old wine shops in Boston, uh, Macy's, which was up uh, Mass Ave, which became Marty's, which actually is now Newton. I think it's actually Marty's. Uh, that's how they said, it, but coming from Oklahoma, I couldn't really, I couldn't really, I couldn't pull that off. That's right. Actually, if we try and do that with a Southern accent, it sounds even <laughs> yeah, worse. Really bad. Sounds much worse. Um, but, uh, I used to go up, I was a designated booze buyer and, um, wound up hanging around in the, in the wine section and I got intrigued by these things. Uh, there was a guy who ran the wine shop there who still runs the wine, uh, program in, uh, Newton called, uh, his name is, uh, Tom Schmeiser. And... I imagine you know two in the afternoon when I probably should have been in class. Uh, it's a dead time in the wine shop. Uh, he went up talking to me, telling me about things, and invited me to a few wine tastings, which back in those days uh, meant uh, let's let's taste all the 1981 first growth Bordeaux. It'll cost you ten bucks. Yeah, um, because a bottle of at that time 1981. Well, actually, that would have been 78, 79. Uh, Mouton ran around 30 bucks a bottle, which I always try to equate it to the price of, say, a six-pack of beer or, or a case of beer. It wasn't that much more. So you say, okay, I can buy a case of St. Pauli Girl for 25 bucks, or I can buy a bottle of Mouton for 30 Yeah. And that's kind of what, what pulled me in, in a way, because I, I did try a few of the things. I went to some of the tastings you recommended, and I just had my – head blown off by these wine, these things. I say, I can't believe this is happening for, for $30. Um, and hopefully I'll 
today we can go a little bit further into this. And an issue I think is a real problem with uh, getting into great wines today is how inaccessible they they were. But in 1980, they were accessible. So, so what kind of made the light go off that you said? Not only do I super like this, but this is also a direction I want to go for a career. Um, I got an English degree. Yeah. Uh, so I wasn't drawn towards the finance world. Uh, as an old classmate of mine said, he said he we we came up in the days of avarice and greed, and I, they're kind of the same. But I, I like to say, so like this is what you absolutely. Uh, yeah. So. This is what you were supposed to do: get a job uh, in the stock market. Uh, my, I come from a family of doctors and lawyers. Uh, a few college professors who hopefully you know, <laughs> helped to mitigate uh, the avaricious side. And I just was never comfortable outside of, let's say, the academia side. And um, it, it it felt good. And when I met people in the wine business. Um, you know, as you know, later on, you know, down the road, I wound up working with David Shilkinek, who is uh, one of the most challenging people um, you would ever read or work with. Um, I, 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 I liked the chance to, to 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 deal with people who were kind of out there, but not scary. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Um, they fascinated me. And the more I went to wine tastings, uh, started finding other wine stores, the more I said, you know, I really like these people. They're, um, they're out there. You just, they were, they were fascinating to deal with. The subject was utterly fascinating. It changes every year. Um, the more you get into it, the more you discover, uh, tangential subjects or ten, well, tangential regions. Um, also the more you get into it, uh, the more what you know really becomes irrelevant. So right now I could say, oh, I know everything about how the 1985 harvest turned out in Nui St. George. Well, it's irrelevant now. Um, and I find that cleansing in a way uh, because it pushes you uh, further out. So every year, every harvest is a new thing. And I found the wine business to be filled with people who just, it, 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 it obsessed them and I found myself kind of pulled in, luckily for me, at a young age. And uh, I've just, I just, I loved it. So, you know, say the mutual fund thing um, <laughs> paled yeah. in comparison. So, I mean, do you find that same level of community, same sorts of figures in a wine trade today as you did then? Or, or are there differences? I mean, what was the scene like at that time? How would you define it? Um, it's definitely not as interesting now. Is in that true? Opinion. I don't think so. And what would be the differences? Um, I think now people want to become an instant expert. Uh Uh, I mean, I'm 50. And um, I am completely humiliated when I come into tastings with a lot of regions of Italy, um, particularly Italy. Uh, It's always the most frustrating place. Um. I think there's 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 too much of a rush to be an expert to to be slick to be uh, <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. Uh, people want instant celebrity. Yeah, and, people want instant celebrity. And I mean, I I moved boxes. I mean, I carried a box cutter in my pocket for seven years in Washington D.C. Um, 
I was able to taste an amazing amount of wines, great wines, but I never really lost sight of the fact that I was working in a liquor store. Do you think the price changes had a change in that and in, in, in the sense that like it became about big money and so a different crowd came in or the that the publications targeted different audiences? What what changed the culture? Uh I think there's a few things. I mean, I think there's a, there's well def- there's definitely the price so as I alluded to earlier. Um you can't taste the great you can't taste the benchmarks now. Uh I remember I specifically remember one thing I did in Boston. Um, I was reading probably one of Hugh Johnson's books because basically that's all there was back then um, about uh, White Bordeaux. So I wanted to learn about White Bordeaux. I could go to a wine shop and for $100, I could buy La Ville Aubryon, Aubryon Blanc, and Domaine de Chevalier, the big three, for under $100. But how many Burgundy freaks were there then compared to now, where it's almost like the blue chip gold standard is Burgundy now, but at the time it was more of a niche thing? Uh, I'd say at the, at the risk of uh, discounting how people are now, I think people were serious back then. Uh-huh. They literally bought everything. I mean, they they bought top to bottom. Yeah. Um, they bought vintage in, vintage out. They really did buy more uh, by producer, and I mean producer all the way down the line, not like this Shorey producer, this Savigny producer. So now if you buy Savigny, you know, it's like, oh, it's Pavolo. Like, right. It's predictable. You know yeah. what they're going to buy. Say, oh, I really love Savigny. It's like, let me guess, Pavolo? You know, and I, I think there's a little bit more uh let's call it celebrity chasing uh-huh. now than there was. Is that because people are competing on a global stage instead of a burgundy stage? It could be the price. Yeah. It could be the price. Um, but Pavlo, of course, Pavlo, because of the fact that they've become the 70 producer, prices have doubled. Yeah. Because the one that well, you buy. Well, Domino is like sold out before the tasting now. You yeah. Know what I mean? yeah. And I mean, what? And, and then you also get the... You know, the minor appellations, they're made by the big name guys. So you get somebody like uh, uh, Lafon, you get his Montilly, you know, duress, and, you know, it's like a, also it's like an $80 wine or something like that. Right. And, you know, he didn't hint, intend it that way. And the market decided it was that way. Can't blame him. Uh, but it's sort of fascinating. And that's where it becomes much more about Lafon than it does about Montilly. <laughs> <laughs> Or vintage or anything. It's just to own to own a Lafont. Um, so the brand naming thing, yeah, that's that's much much more prevalent now. Do you think much it's more. almost kind of like the world of fashion, where it's like, yeah, I know Fendi's good, I know Gucci's good, but I don't know anything about fashion. I mean, I have no idea. No I'm, question. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I mean, you can't go wrong. I mean, in a sense, it's. Um, I mean, the irony is that uh, <laughs> that a lot of the people who buy these wines think that they're not being silver oaky but they actually are being silver oaky that you know the old things like if you worked in a steakhouse somebody's had to buy a bottle of silver oak or a bottle of cake bread or jordan or duckhorn and you were the man yeah well now it's if you have lafon and coasterie so you don't even really need to know what it is you just need to know those brand, the brand names and you order them and jocosa and um i don't i wonder how many People who are buying those wines actually, um, well, number one, even open them. And uh, number two, when they do open them, really, let's say, pay attention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
uh, or open for people who do pay attention, which I think is a real shame because these are, um, you know, very small production, interesting wines. I don't want to get into all their pieces of art, but yeah, they are. I mean, they're uh, they're wines that are made in a very short period of time in this winemaker's life, and you know, he can literally define his oeuvre in <laughs> how many bottles he's made. And it's kind of gut-wrenching to think that an awful lot of these bottles are just getting popped and poured and not even thought about. It's really shame. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to think that people are wiping their ass with a Picasso. <laughs> That's a little extreme, but it's, yeah, you know, it, are people really paying attention or are they just dr uh, drinking the name? Mm-hmm. But I mean, you write about wine now, and right. you have a following that reads your work. So presumably, I uh, well, I mean, I think you do. So presumably, somebody's out there and interested in in uh, the kinds of things you're interested in. Uh, how did that come about, and and what is it that you tend to focus on in your own tasting notes? Well, I um, I'm working with Steve Tanzer, as you know, and um, I met Steve when I was working at Pearson's with because uh, David Shilkonect was writing with Steve at the time. Covering uh, Alsace uh, in Germany, and, and David worked at, at that and, same store. Well, David ran ran the wine program there, and I was his uh, <laughs> Steven Fetch. It what I I it was it was great. I considered it my graduate school. So when he asked you to get coffee, was it like a three thousand word ode to coffee? No, he's like I, I would like a coffee, little bit of skim. If if the if it's two percent, then I'll take a even you know like he's like because everything with him is like a treatise, you know. Well, the thing about if you know David, um, to paraphrase uh, Dali here, yeah, uh, David doesn't drink coffee. David is coffee. Oh, I see, I see. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> You did not need to be caffeinated with David. Oh, oh okay, gotcha. <laughs> he, he, yeah, he does seem to have a lot of energy. Human coffee. Well, Tanzer said that the, he'd never seen anybody with that that level of stamina. Like he would go through four or five appointments in Bordeaux, and then like they would have dinner, and it would be like nine o'clock, and then David would say to Tanzer, like, "Hey, I'm going to go out to Bergerac now in my car and taste through two more estates, and I'll see you in the morning." Like you know. Oh, I mean, David's a. Um David's a unique, a new, unique character. I mean, first, I, I met him. I, I met him when I moved down to DC in '85, uh, or moved to the the area. He was working at he was working at a, a shop called Rex, uh, which is now, for people familiar with DC, uh, the site of a cheesecake factory. Oh, okay. Directly across from the Mazza Gallery uh, on Wisconsin Avenue, and then he went on to work at Mayflower, which is a iconic store in dc and then wound up at pearson's where i worked with him um steve uh had david writing these things so i met steve there and when i moved up here to new york to start uh working with neil uh steve and i got back in touch uh we went up tasting a lot together uh i lived not far away uh and it was a great way for me to stay in touch with really the wines that i saw when i was in Washington that I really wasn't able to see when I was working with Neil. Oh, okay. Uh, because once you go into one portfolio, you're well, in one portfolio and you can't taste broadly. It's a proverbial, uh, it, it's the portfolio palette. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, that is your world. Uh, hopefully you don't start to think that it's the only thing that matters, but that's obviously a danger. 
and this was in a way an an outlet for me yeah. to to see to to stay in touch with with the other things. So this went on for a while. He wound up uh, actually Steve wound up hiring my wife uh, in nineteen ninety four um, when our daughter was born. She was cooking at a restaurant in New York, <clears throat> and she's still with him. So that's a long program. But so we were very close, stayed in touch, this and that. And there was a time in uh, two thousand and late two thousand four where he was uh, able to expand. I mean, the world of wine has changed dramatically, uh, not just in the regions that we all know, but regions that didn't exist that weren't worth paying attention to. Uh, all of, not to say all of a sudden, but they hit critical mass where you really needed to pay attention to them. And frankly, he couldn't do it. One guy it, couldn't do it on his own anymore. It's impossible. Yeah, it's impossible. And so he asked if it was uh, something I was interested in. And yeah, at that time, um, it was good. It wasn't a, a question of, actually, I would say it was far from a question of being tired of doing what I was doing. I loved what I was doing. I had two daughters. Um, uh, I was 43, which isn't old, doesn't sound old, but seems young now. And um, I was traveling all around the country. I mean, it was Portland. Uh, California, Las Vegas, Chicago was a huge market, New Orleans, Atlanta. And it uh, also seemed like a good time, as Steve said to me. He said, look, you've been doing this for almost 20 years. Um, why not write about it, you know, talk about it, you know, taste the wines, talk about it? I mean, it's really weird. I don't, I, it seems egomaniacal, I think, to say, oh, I'll be a critic. I'll... I'll talk about wine. I'll, I'll tell you what to do. And that's not how we really look at things. It's, I, it's just, these are the wines we taste. This is what we think about them. We try and describe them very carefully. I think mm -hmm. people who read our notes know that we try to be analytical. I mean, we're criticizing. It, I've, been reading, I've been reading Steve, obviously, for 20, 20 at least almost 20 years, 20, 20 plus wow, years amazing. at that point. Yeah. And so I was very familiar with his with, method. With his style and well, it's very, and you've been tasting together for a while. For a long time. Yeah. And and obviously, it's very much like the books you have here. It's very in English, let's say, or English-inspired, which is a little cold, a little critical. Americans aren't necessarily used to that. They like a little bit more... Personality say, in there. <laughs> a different type of personality. Uh, car chase, yeah, let's uh -huh, say. Uh -huh. uh, car chase Explosions. Uh, yeah, I mean, people also like Schadenfreude. They like to read something that's critical, hypercritical, and uh -huh. slamming, and this and that. Um but uh, Steve never never did that. It, it tended to be somebody would say analytical, somebody else would say cold. I saw it as uh, measured. Measured, yeah. yeah. And That's the word I would use. Yeah, which I think is a, is a compliment. Yeah. So uh, it, it was a comfortable fit for me. I mean, that's the writing I, I liked. And uh, it just seemed like a, like a good time to do it. And he offered me some regions that I really – liked and that I knew well. Had you been doing any kind of writing previously? I mean, any kind at all, like uh, essays, fiction, poetry, anything? No, just read a lot. Refrigerator poetry? No, def definitely not poetry. <laughs> I've got a poetry, I've got a poetry issue. <laughs> oh, is that true? I, I, I do too, actually. I have a hard time hearing it myself, the meter. I don't, ooh, know. I don't know why that is. I have a really, <laughs> a really hard time. Maybe it's because my last class was a, uh, it was a master's thing on, uh, on, um, Early American poetry. This was college, college, yeah, and, and, college and it days. was, and it was really, it, 
it put me off poetry. If I wasn't already off of it, I was permanently off it. You know, I think I saw that same thing happen because I was in uh, 18th century and early 19th century American uh, poetry. And the, he gave us a, a compendium. And a lot of it was kind of like self-taught guys, ex-slaves. And um, he was very passionate, the teacher at the time. And he said, look, you, you really can't understand what led to Whitman unless you read this. And But like no one in the class wanted to go along with him. Everyone well, was like... These poems aren't aren't perfectly good. Like these are not great poems, and we don't want to spend our time reading them because they're okay poems, not great poems. And I almost think you can see that parallel in wine. Oh, I was about to say you took the words out of my mouth. Um, I I loved the order that is uh, that. Uh, for example, German philosophy, I love. I I love Kant because it's about order, direction. However, that is antithetical to a lot of great wine, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is about uh, disorder. Yeah, not to well. If you control the fermentation temperature, usually you get a simpler wine. Like over control oh. can lead to a simpler taste. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's you know it's the proverbial mole on the cheek. Yeah, it's the thing that uh, it distracts, but at the same time it compels. It adds complexity. Absolutely, and something for a wine to be compelling. It can't be just you know, straight down the Perfect. line. No, that's yeah. that's it's boring. It's predictable. It's it's programmable. Uh, at the same time, um, it can be it can be good. It can be fine. And there are some people who really don't want to be distracted by the old mole on the cheek. Um, I, I do most of the time. At the same time, I try to keep things a little bit more Catholic, shall we say. Uh, and, and appreciate that. I think there's uh, a lot of uh, obsession now with being hypercritical about things that are just that people think are uh, too programmed when they're really not. I mean, it's almost like a witch hunt. Mm-hmm. You and, feel that's going on. Yeah. And if something's not dirty, <laughs> it's therefore flawed. So it's this reversal. So do you feel like some of the verbiage coming out of what's going on with natural wine is maybe overly dramatic? Absolutely. Uh, and maybe uh, is it creating and uh, creating more to, of a divisive territory than need be there? Um, I don't think there's any question that where the divisiveness comes from is from the natural wine side. You do think that? Absolutely. Because I think most of the people who like corporate wine couldn't care less. Uh-huh. They're, they're not even involved in the discussion. Right, <laughs> they, right. They, they aren't on the bulletin boards. They're, they don't care. Yeah. They're just drinking wine. For better or worse, but there okay. are guys like Jamie Good or like the the techno side, Tom Mork guys. The tech, the techno side, the techno you know, side. They yeah. take a stand, you know. Yeah, but they're they're not as heard, shall we say? I, I don't think as the natural one side. I mean, the uh-huh. natural one side has done a, a very, very good job of of gaining attention, much more so than say the techno side, which uh-huh. is good because obviously they, they've hit a chord. Um, at people. Uh, people don't want to drink corporate wine. They don't want to do anything corporate. They don't right. want to feel like... They want to be 99% that one person. They don't want to be uh, Lehman Brothers wine. I think they just want to... They want to do something that feels good to their conscience. Right. Or, uh, and that's even too strong a word. Like People know what's people know what's right and what's wrong. And they and if a wine is too slick, uh, if you got somebody like Gallo making something and they're hiding who that, that is a Gallo wine by hiding behind some corporate name on the back label mm. or some weird P.O. box something in some open. town. Yeah. 
Yeah, people like that. They feel deceived. Right. People don't want to feel deceived. But at the same time, there's a, uh, let's call it a witch hunty kind of thing that until recently, for example, you couldn't be part of the natural crowd if you drank anything from California. Wow. You know, Bordeaux. I mean, these are regions that are associated with uh, the mainstream, uh, with uh, the bourgeois. The old, you know, old with, thinking. Let's be honest, with Parker. Yeah. And so to say that you like something that Parker liked was to you get thrown out of the little club. You're at least suspecting. Oh, uh, like Grenache. No way. Yeah. Chateau de Pop. No way. Right. Uh, but let me ask you, I mean, that all being said, and I understand what you mean. You've also been in the Beaujolais zone a lot. You saw yeah. what happened with Lapierre. I mean, you know what's going on with Foyard, yeah. Davinia. I mean, there is a difference, right, between sure. that and some of the stuff that was oh uh, under a, a flower label. Oh no, no, there's a there's a there's a huge difference, without a question. And would you chalk that up to natural wine techniques or natural wine sensibilities, or no? I think that no, they've always been there. Yeah. Um, it, it the situation now is that people are actually aware of them. I'd like to say, selfishly, thanks to people like us. I mean, oh, Steve has well, always written these things. People up. who write. Yeah. People um, who act as an intermediary. Because yeah, these people don't come to the States much and talk for themselves. No, absolutely not. Um, and they also sell damn well <laughs> near everything that they make there. So you do think that there is a role for a writer to uh, make these things more clear to an audience? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Because I mean, sometimes I hear, uh, hey, look, there, there's nothing that matters in between the producer and the consumer. The rest of it's just noise. But you well, wouldn't agree. Well, I'd say, I'd say good luck to them. Yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been as, as a consumer, like, I've been doing this for 25 years. Steve started publishing uh, the IWC in 2005, so 27 years full time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd say that. Yeah, I'd say we're a little more exposed to producers in Beaujolais than some lawyer in New York City who started drinking wine three years ago. Yeah, I would say we have something to offer. Yeah. Not to sound too sarcastic, but uh, yeah, and, we've, and we've been writing about these for years. I still get a kick when I go online and reading people like, oh, we just discovered, discovered yeah. Bedrock. Right, right. Well, I started writing about Red Rocks like five years ago. <laughs> Do you think that there's a lack of uh, citations, as it were, in the wine industry, or everyone kind of claims credit for discovering something as opposed to looking back and saying, like, hey, this guy was writing about this for a while now? Yeah, but there's a, there are no there are no new no new discoveries. I mean, yeah, as, it's a Solomon thing. There's nothing new on this. Right. I mean, it's 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 always been out there, and people get led to things. Uh, I mean, the reason I got read, led to Bedrock, for example, uh, was because Morgan's father, Joel Peterson. Uh, which I'm I'm curious as how many people who are all hyped up about Bedrock know that he is the son of Joel Peterson, and actually Joel Peterson from Ravenswood is a partner in Bedrock. Uh huh. Uh -huh. But I'm sure a lot of people who buy Bedrock would never are the buy first Ravenswood. ones. I would never buy Ravenswood. Right. Ravenswood is da, da 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 da. But that's posing, and I wish people would just sort of step back from that and say like, "Oh, I'm so cool. Yeah, I buy this and I don't buy that," and and actually taste the wines, drink the wines. Ideally, drink them um, without primping and preening and trying to say, "Oh, I'm so much more uh, cool than everybody else uh -huh. uh, because I I've discovered something." Because odds are somebody else already discovered it. Yeah. Um, so you're not that cool, and and then you start looking like a real idiot when somebody's able to hold up a flag and say, "Excuse me." Yeah. Uh, 
there's a shop in Columbus, Ohio that was selling that stuff five years ago. Um, yeah, so I mean, but how would you recommend that someone approach learning about the world of wine? I mean, what is a let me just ask, what is a good attitude to have if you're going to learn about wine? Go to a great wine shop, which is what I did. Yeah. Uh, and most towns now have them. I mean, I was fortunate being in Boston uh, and after that in D.C. and also Baltimore, which had great towns, uh, great shops. Uh, they're there. And go and, and make a relationship with the guy. I mean, Chris Barnes, for example, who's now gone. I mean, they, they, they tend to come and go, but Chris Barnes... Uh, down on Chamber Street, you know, fantastic sort of oh, Spanish, Spanish wines. Spanish reds was really good. Yeah, and and he'd you know, take it personally if you if you Chris Cottrell. Mm-hmm. By the way, speaking of the way the world changes, he's now working for Bedrock. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, yeah. Um, at at Crush, uh, Joe Salomon. Yeah, uh, these guys take it very personally. If you don't like something they recommend, they hurt. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they want to figure out what they got wrong. Sometimes I feel like if I don't like it enough. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. But that's the guy you want. That's the yeah, guy you someone want. Someone is in your corner in a way. Yeah. And um, go to find a store like that and then stick with it loyally. I mean, just go in and- if Let I, them read your palate too. Completely. Because it is yeah. about you. Yeah. Um, I mean, what we try to do is, as, a, as, a, as a critical journal, let's say, is, is describe the wines. Hopefully people will look at it and say, oh, this sounds like something I would like. Yeah. And then go out and try it. Uh, the odds are, I mean, a lot of the wines that we write about are only available at places like Crush, uh, Chamber Street, um, you know, being New York centric here, uh, Astor. A couple of places um, in Brooklyn sometimes. Yeah. I mean. Oh, for sure. And, and, um, in other words, I, I haven't traveled much around the country. I miss it. Yeah. Uh, cause you're in Europe. But, long yeah. Long. But it, it happens in, in other, in other places. Vinopolis in Portland is a shop that I know well and buy wine from. Uh-huh. Um, Go to them and just kind of, I say, throw yourself at their mercy in a way and say, yeah. look, here's what I like. Take me, you know, lead me, either lead me to enlightenment or lead me down the primrose path. Yeah. But if it's a primrose path, then you'll figure it out pretty quick. I'll be and you'll go shopping someplace else. To the next place. Yeah. So there are enough people, it's like being a sommelier. You, you're as good as the last bottle you sold. And I've always believed that. And I think as uh, as a wine, you know, as, as a wine, a critical journal, I'm as good as I hate to say every single note, but as my collection of notes go, if I'm off base, way off base, we'll find out really quick. In terms of subscriptions are gone, I'll have no respect in the marketplace. This guy's an idiot. What's he talking about? He can't taste. He has a palate of stone. Uh, hopefully, I won't be that guy. And a sommelier who comes around and recommends wines that don't match the food. First of all, probably have a very short life at that restaurant as an employee and um, will earn a reputation for the guy that you don't trust. And you just, you don't want to be that guy, right? Because I mean, at the end of the day, there's not so many people who are spending a fair amount of money on wine. There's only a certain audience for this. And even today. Well, but I'd like to think that we're a good way I think a sommelier, a sommelier should treat every customer exactly. You know, you, you come in. I mean, there are people who come in who spend zero. Mm-hmm. They just drink water. But if the guy is going to buy a twenty-four dollar bottle from the list, I miss a twenty-four bottle of wine that the sommelier chose. Um, he should be proud of it. Yeah. In fact, those are harder to choose than the high-end wines. Anybody can buy Freddie Mounier. How do you find that Bergerac? 
that you can put on the list for 24 bucks that is killer. That's a lot of tasting to taste uh, through. As yeah. a ton. Yeah. And then a customer who who sees that says, God damn, you know, you, you did your work. I, I see that the same way for us. That mm-hmm. It's very easy for us to write an article and say, oh, the current releases of wines from Comte Lafonne are absolutely fabulous. Right. I mean, honestly, do they need us to tell that? Right. DRC is amazing. Wow. You should yeah. buy all you can afford, right. which is zero. Um, finding some cool guy in San Josef who's got old vines planted on, you know, pure granite vineyard up in, I mean, yeah. And saying you can find this wine for 24 bucks and it'll kill most Hermitages. Yeah. yeah I'd say that is more, that's, I'd, I call that a noble pursuit. That's a customer service. I think so. I hope so. So one of the things you guys did was you switched from print to web only. How has yeah. that worked out? Um, what is What are the ramifications of that? Well, I'd say that uh, Newsweek is doing it. Yeah, right. So now, so I'd say Tina we're, Brown's in we're, that market. We're, ahead, we're ahead of our time. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> um, it's worked out fun. Yeah. It's worked out fun. Uh, I mean, I still love to uh, hold books in my hand. Um, I didn't like it. I mean, honestly, I'd still love to be able to do it, but it's uh, it's very expensive. Um, the printing and the mailing, everything, yeah. especially uh, the mailing is the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are very uh, subscribers are very resistant to uh, subscription increases. You know? Yeah, and we had at one point, I think we had three postal increases during which we had no subscription price increases. So I mean, we ate every single one. Yeah. And also printing, I mean, ink is petroleum-based, so do the math on that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it costs a lot more. Uh, it was an economic thing. Yeah. And at this point, it's been just fine. I mean, people can still print it. We do it in a way where people can, where there's a printable. Yeah, you can hit Control-P. And, just... and and or you can also print the whole article. There's yeah. a whole way to do it. And it's sort of, it's sort of funny because people come back and say, damn, I just burned up my whole printer cartridge and we say well yeah that's what we were doing right 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 that's what we were doing (laughs) yeah and so um it's yeah it's expensive i mean print is expensive i mean it has nothing to do with being you know hugging the tree or anything like that it was uh but what's the response from the producer side like i feel like a lot of the old world guys kind of show a lot of deference to printed word uh depends on the age of the older guy yeah old world yeah young guys in old world yeah, okay. So um, the more traveled set who are on Facebook or like yeah. whatever, dude. Well, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i in the process right now of setting up uh, appointments for my trip to the Rhone, which is uh, next week. And I'd say a good third of the responses that I got from emails I sent to them come back with things like sent from my iPhone. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so, you know, this guy, I don't think he really, he's he's not as concerned about having this thing in his hand. Yeah. As say, you know, his father or his grandfather. So, I mean, I think a lot of people today would look at the job you have and be like, wow, wine critic. You travel to Europe a lot, meet with the growers, you taste in the cellars. You know, you're you're paid, uh, although not an extravagant amount of money, but you're you're paid an amount of money to expound and write on wine. If you were to give advice to a young person who are maybe in retail today who wanted to do that or was a sommelier today, what would you say to that person about the industry, about the future of the industry, and about what they could do to put themselves where, where you have done? Taste everything you can mm-hmm. and talk to everybody uh, that you come in contact with with uh, complete, if not abject, humility 
learn everything. Read everything. Anything you get your hands on. Uh, one of the things that also I love seeing on the uh, it's on the internet is we say I don't subscribe to anything, which I just find hilarious mm-hmm. because it's saying <laughs> I have nothing to learn. Read, read, read. Taste, taste, taste. Um, get a mentor if that's possible. Yeah. Uh, it. I, I mean, it. It took me. Uh, you know, like I said, years with David. A uh, couple of years in France. It was a long time. I, mean, I, I basically started to dig in when I was around twenty and. I didn't really, let's say, pop up into a situation where it was something prestigious. Let's call it, you know, working with Neil until you know ten years later. Yeah. And in between, there was it was opening a lot of boxes. Yeah. Um, but it was tasting a lot of wine, not getting paid a lot of money. Um. There's just there's no there's no quick fix. Right. And this goes back to what you brought up a little bit earlier. I think there's just a lot of people who feel like in two or three years, all of a sudden they got to be some you know star mm-hmm. guy. That's just not happening. It needs to some wine needs to flow under the bridge a lot, yeah. a lot, and a lot of boxes on the shoulder mm-hmm. or going out on the street, and uh, you learn a lot. You learn a lot uh, as a salesman actually meeting sommeliers who actually know a lot more than you, and it can be humiliating. You know, you show up and the guy knows more than you, but if you're not a jackass. Maybe you'll sit back and the guy won't treat you like dirt, and mm-hmm. you'll taste with him, and he'll teach you something. It's just a long, slow process. There's no, there's no quick fix. I would just say, uh, first thing would be get a job at, at the best shop that you could, which is what I did. Yeah, uh, work with somebody who's effectively insane, like David, like I did, mm-hmm. but who has a body of knowledge that is incomparable. Like I said, I treated it like it was graduate school, and it was with an amazingly uh, talented and um, demanding professor. But when you start saying, "Oh, I need off on Thanksgiving Day," if you're doing that, you know, good luck. You know, you can't be that guy. Yeah. Oh, when's my vacation? No, no. I mean, I it was six days a week uh, in DC when I was there. It was six days a week, and it was nine to nine. It was twelve hours a day. I don't regret a minute of it. But that's how I met Clive Coates, Neil Rosenthal, uh, Bobby Catcher, uh, Dan Kravitz, Peter Wygant, everybody. And I would not have been able to do that if I hadn't been willing to work for somebody who said 12 hours a day, six days a week. Otherwise, you can you know stock shelves. So I say go to a place like Chamber Street or a store of that caliber and basically say, I'll move boxes just to watch somebody like David Lilly uh, work. You know, you learn by osmosis. I I truly believe. Uh, if you sit in the presence of, <laughs> I say David would, would hate for me to say greatness, but if you sit in the presence of that for long enough or work in the presence of it, uh, you're going to pick up a lot if you're attentive. And I'd say if you take a job like that, it, probably means by definition you're you're already there uh that's it you know at a restaurant go to work for a great sommelier say i'll, I'll work in the cellar uh i mean there's no shortcut that's for sure because if you don't know the subject you'll be, you'll get called bullshit real quick mm-hmm. 
So you can sit there and act like, oh, I know Burgundy so well. I know Lafon, you know, I know Merceau, I know Pouligny. And says, really? That's cool. What do you know about Saint-Aubin? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, mm, I don't know that. I mean, everybody can know all the main roads. Yeah. But knowing New York doesn't mean knowing New York City and Manhattan and Nassau County and even Suffolk County. It's like, what can you tell about Columbia County? Oh, I don't know that. So, so you don't know New York. You know, it's, it's easy to know the Grand Cruz, the Premier Cruz. How do you, you have to be willing to learn the whole subject, mm-hmm. right? I mm-hmm. mean, Barolo, Barbaresco, cool. But let's start talking about, you know, let's go up to Carema. Let's mm-hmm. start talking about that. And that's actually where it gets more enriching, I think. Well, sometimes at the, the poles of what's possible, like, you know, Carama is a little colder, you start to see what the potential is for the grape and the place. You know, oh, you for start sure. where, where things are more extreme, it sort of casts a, a deeper shade into the wines one way or another. Well, it, it also, it's, it's something that wasn't, in a lot of ways, it's not something that was handed. It's easy to learn about Barolo. There mm-hmm. are books about Barolo on a single subject. But if you want to learn about Carema in particular, uh, it takes a certain amount of work. And I guess I'm an old Calvinist in a way that I think it's something that's worth knowing, is worth working for. Yeah. And it's just, it's very simple to say, oh, DRC is great Burgundy. Well, duh. Yeah. That's not hard to do. It's like making some pronouncement. Oh, New York. You go to New York, you should go to Per Se and Danielle. Digging a little deeper, it, 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 to me, it's it requires a little more effort, and to me, it's a lot. It, I, I would say, it's a lot more enriching, and it's more gratifying. Josh Reynolds, he made his wine knowledge the old-fashioned way. He earned it. Thank you, sir, for being on the show today. Great to have uh, you. I love here. you. It is a pleasure. You're the man. All drink to that is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tanoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.